When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time for another episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, brought to you by Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com and by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And today, Marcus, I want to go back to a date, 25 September 1976, in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Man, England was a busy place in 1976, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Stranglers and Susie and the Banshees and on and on and on and on are all playing all over the country. And there's this progressive band called Curved Air playing a gig in Newcastle up there in the Northeast. And their drummer is Stuart Copeland. And at that gig, he meets a local former school teacher named Gordon Sumner, who becomes Sting. Now, he was playing in a jazz rock band, surprise, surprise, called Last Exit. So I kind of think of this as Curved Air meets Last Exit on their way to become the police. Absolutely. At that point, Stuart Copeland said, here's my number. If you ever show up in London, you must call me. And he did exactly that just months later when he relocated to London. Almost as soon as he got there, he called up Copeland for a jam session to get together and play, right? Yeah. And they had a Corsican-born guitarist named Henri Padovani playing guitar for them. <laughs> you know, some people say that he was the most punk member of the original lineup of The Police, the band we're talking about today, because he thrashed about so hard on his instrument, both on stage and on the few recordings that he did. And he wasn't in The Police for long, right? Correct, but he did record the single Fallout with... Sting and Stewart, and that was before Andy Summers joined the band. So, And that's what we get around to next a few months later in the 1977. Mike Hallett from Gong is putting together a special project called Strontium 90, and he invites Sting to come and join in the band. Now, Mike had a drummer in mind, but he couldn't make it, so Sting brought Copeland along. And the fourth member of Strontium 90 at that project that day 
I think he was a young stud guitarist whose resume included a stint with a band called The Animals and uh-huh. with a guy named Kevin Ayers, who was big over there as well. The one and only Andrew James Summers. And he was older than Sting and Stu, but they fell in right away. Yeah, the chemistry was there right from the get-go, and it was pretty explosive between the three of them. And they all wanted the same thing, a faster, aggressive sound, but they were all very talented, much better than most of the punks in that scene at that time. Now, Andy Summers wasn't impressed by Padovani's playing, and Sting had been going south on him as well. And he said he would join their new band under the condition that they move forward as a trio, but the guy showed some loyalty and said they were going to keep Padovani. Sting was already leaning towards Andy's position before they got to that ultimatum that we've read about probably in three or four dozen articles over the years, right? (laughs) Yep. So the three of them pull together and start gigging, and they have a recording session lined up with John Cale as producer. I'm not sure if this was the reason, but somewhere in the middle of all that, Andy kind of delivered the ultimatum about Padovani to the other two, and that's when they let him go, and he joined Wayne County in the electric chairs, who the police had opened for. All right, It's crazy, right? All connected there. Yeah, but also Padovani felt out of place in the band once Andy Summers joined, and he knew that those three players' chemistry was a lot stronger. So my guess is he knew it was coming eventually. Miles Copeland helped the band out by loaning them 1,500 pounds. That gave the three of them the money to use a studio during downtime hours And there they laid down some tracks on a piecemeal basis. And Outlandos de Amor was recorded very low budget, like extremely low budget. On a regular basis now, we see the theme of coming in to record late at night for punk bands because the rates are good and you can get it all done. And the police took that same route to get it done at the beginning. They even recorded on secondhand multi-track tape because they couldn't afford brand new tape. So Outlander more was recorded on secondhand tape. Look, they got things rolling, and that allowed Miles to do some things, including founding IRS Records to bring other people, other like-minded bands, into the fold, like the Buzzcocks and the Cramps and, and people like that. But also, we shouldn't forget, R.E.M. and the Bangles on the popular side, and eventually, they hit it big with the Go-Go's. And they come into our story again a little bit later on. 
I guess off of the strength of fallout that gets them the momentum to show them the way to get into the studio and make outlandish Demori. Yeah. And then miles made a deal with A&M to get the records out over here. Don't forget that. Absolutely. Their goal was to get played in America. And remember, this was a homemade studio that they recorded this album in. The guy who owned the studio was Dr. Nigel Gray, who was a doctor during the day and recorded music as a hobby. And it had egg cartons on the walls in the studio. So it was like really, really homemade. And that accounts for a lot of that rawness in that first album sound. Well, let's talk about that debut album on A&M proper, even though they were working with Miles and IRS was bubbling under. Released at the end of 1978, November 2nd, and like a lot of debut albums from foreign territories, initially it wasn't really reacting very large. No, it wasn't, but it hits you with a bang. Like, they open up with Next to You into So Lonely and Roxanne, and that's just three great tunes right off the bat. I think the police gained or had a following on college radio early on in America, more so than pop radio. Oh, I know, definitely, because I played them on college radio, and you can look at the progression of the pop charts for the band and see there's nothing at the beginning. And that's when college radio is playing Fallout, any other records they can get by them, and then the first album, and then the second record. But here's what happens. It starts to react off of a reissue of Roxanne, repeaks at number 32 on the U.S. pop charts. And that's as they're getting ready to put out Regatta de Blanc. So they're rehitting with Message in a Bottle behind the success of the second record and then driving it home with Walking on the Moon and stuff like that. All the way through this first album, you know that this next album is going to be better. And you know that this band has so much potential. Not only those first three songs that we mentioned are on that album, but you have Hole in My Life, Can't Stand Losing You, Truth Hits Everybody, songs like Born in the 50s. I mean, it's just a wild ride, and it really, really... Uh, gives you a feel for how talented they are with the reggae, with the jazz, with this rock and roll. All and their brand of punk, too. Yeah, fast. Next to You kind of sets the tone for where they're headed, and they head in that direction for the first couple records, 
And you come out of the gate with Message in a Bottle, which goes to number 74 on the pop chart initially. And they're building momentum moving forward. And while none of the other singles are hitting on Top 40 radio, what is happening is the police are taking over rock and roll radio in America, AOR, whatever you want to call it at that time, doing it their way. True. In London, Message in a Bottle hit number one in the UK. Oh, yeah. They were ruling in UK. They also had a number one with uh, Walking on the Moon and... Bring on the night could have been a top 10 hit as well as the beds too big without Mm -hmm. you. It's really, really a great second step from that debut record. It really, really sets the tone for who the police are going to be and how great they're going to become. Well, they stick with Nigel Gray for the follow-up to their successful second album, and they hole up in Wieselord in Netherlands, right? Absolutely. They wanted to go back to Surrey Studios, and the record label was like, nope, we gave you a budget of 35,000 pounds for this record. You're going somewhere else to record. And so they found Wieselord Studios in the Netherlands, and that's where they recorded. Seemed to have worked out pretty well. That's all I know. Yeah, but it was also a tough recording for them because they had a lot of trouble with their hectic tour schedule. Plus, they were playing a lot of festivals at that time, so they couldn't get like four undisturbed weeks of studio time. And that was one of those things that that band really, really liked to have was that extended time in the studio together to craft those songs. It's a famous quote by Stuart Copeland. He says, literally, we had bitten off more than we could chew. We finished the album at 4 a.m. on the day we were starting our next world tour. Holy shit, man. You get done, you go to bed for a couple hours, and you get up and you go on a world tour. And they were world beaters at this point. The original mix of Regatta de Blanc was awful to all the members of the band, so they were like, We got to get this done. And then the night before that tour, they hammered down and got it done. And I'm curious if they're happy with it, even though they had to rush through it and it turned out to be a pretty great album. I'd say yes. Two stories from that time. One, I was working at WTSR in Trenton and everybody knew that I loved the first two police records. But Don Radom and the music director walked in with this little IRS single and he goes, I've got something I'm not sure you're going to like. And I went, can I just play it? So I just took it and put it on. He goes, it's the new police record. And that was the beginning of Don't Stand So Close to Me. Wow. You know, the way the synthesizers come in and all? Yeah. And as I listened, I turned to Don and said, what were you worried about? Young teacher, the subject of schoolgirl fantasy. She wants him so badly, knows what she wants to be. Inside her, there's longing. And the other part about this time when they were really the biggest band in the world is one of those things you missed out on.
August 22nd, 1981, Liberty Bell Park Racetrack in Philadelphia. You know what's there now? What? Franklin Mills. That's where Liberty Bell Park used to be. They ran the Trotters. Opening band, your boys Oingo Boingo. Next up, the Specials. Then the Go-Go's, who were as hot as they could get. If you've seen the documentary on the band, yes, they were at that peak. And then the police, all in one day, right there at the racetrack. That had to be wild. I can't tell you why I missed it, but I did. But you would have never missed that show if you were living here then, pal. No way. I would have been there for sure. I would have risked getting grounded for a month for that show. And like you, I finally saw them on their 2007 reunion tour. It was a pricey ticket. It was upstairs. I didn't care. It was worth it. Yeah, I got to see them on the reunion tour as well. I saw them on both shows. They were great. It was so much fun, and I'm glad that I got to see them at some point. I will say this, though. On the second time I saw them, it was at the very end of the tour, and you could tell they were tired of playing together because their chemistry was a lot different than in the first show. They also have ways of showing it that aren't verbal. You know? Oh, that is very true. And we'll definitely get into that when we talk about their later albums. Oh, yes. It gets Will. physical as well as uh, verbal in the craziness between them at times. But this album. Hey, it won the Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a Duo or a Group that year. And Best Vocal for Don't Stand So Close to Me. Best Rock Instrumental even for Behind My Camel. Stewart's Camel got a Grammy. That's absolutely hilarious because originally Sting didn't want to play bass on that song because he hated that song <laughs> and he recorded bass on it, but he thought that they had dubbed his bass out of it because he hated the song so much and they didn't do that. But seriously, this did he album, throw a soda at Stu for that? <laughs> did, I don't know, but like if we saw in the Air Montserrat movie, <laughs> that's where we're headed, you know, it is couple albums in a row coming up at George Martin's Tropical Paradise. And this seems like a pretty good time to stop and have a pint and change our bald foot socks and get ready to go back to Air Montserrat. The second half of the police after this on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Thanks as always to Boldfoot Socks for sponsoring the podcast. And boy, oh boy, they've got some big doings and we've got Josh. Yeah, Josh ran a 100K race in the socks that he wore the year before, and they held up just as well the second time. And here's the man, Josh Law, on his latest adventure. The Aravapai 100 miler. All right, so we just hit mile 25, which means we are one-fourth of the way done. We just passed mile 40. Still feeling all right. Just crossed over the 80-mile barrier. Starting to get there. It's also starting to hurt a little bit. Let's go, Josh. Finish it out. Woo! 
Don't forget to go to boldfoot.com and check out the socks that they have. American grown, American sewn. And you know they're road tested by Josh himself. (laughs) They're your feet. Be bold. Ah, springtime, Marcus, and the warmer weather means the doors are going to be open. People are going to be drinking those crooked eye brews outside, enjoying the atmosphere of the warmer weather as the weather turns towards the beautiful part of spring. But between here and there, they're keeping it rocking inside, too, at Crooked Eye, right there in the heart of Hapro. And we thank them for their support for about a million years now on the Imbalance History Podcast. With the weather getting nice, that means they're going to line up some really beautiful spring type of beers for you and I to enjoy when you sit outside and enjoy the weather at Crooked Eye. They also have cocktails. They have food. So much more. It is a great place to hang out. And the entertainment is ongoing. Every night there's something going on, including my vinyl night, the second Tuesday of every month. Grab some friends, come on around right there off of York Road in Montgomery. It's Crook and I Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Always a good time to be had and a new friend to be made. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. It's all about the police this week on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast, Ray and Marcus. And you know, one of the things that I learned along the way, and we always learn something, Sting was a big fan of the German author, Arthur Kostler. And that's where he got the title for Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity from his books. Now, Mr. Kostler was a little bit out of favor as a member of the Communist Party in Germany in the 30s. And he really got disillusioned with Stalinism, but kept writing his books. And they reached out to young Gordon Sumner over there in England. His philosophy is fascinating 
a cliff note summarized version of part of this philosophy is that the mind of a person is not an independent non-material entity or soul or soul spirit that temporarily uses the body as a host the mind and the body are connected so there's no spirit no soul and there's much more to it and we're not going to get into all that craziness oh no we don't have time no, absolutely not. And I haven't read the books either. And I don't think you have as well. But we have to at least give you a quick Cliff Notes version of the philosophy. But I did read that in 1972, he was made CBE, Commander of the British Empire. And that's a great honor. Passing away with Parkinson's and leukemia before either of those were very treatable. Well, something else that the police did differently with this album besides recording at Air Montserrat and Lay Studio in Quebec was that they brought in a new producer, Hugh Padgham, who has also recorded with XTC, Genesis, Killing Joke, The Human League, Peter Gabriel. And he's also well known for the gated reverb sound on the drums. If you listen to Phil Collins in the air tonight closely on the drums, you can hear that gated reverb sound that he was famous for building in the studio. He's part of what happened for these guys at Air Montserrat. Now, I want to point out a couple of things. First, on both Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity, they did part of the album there and part at the studio in Quebec. Same formula, different songs done in different places, different parts done in different places. And these two albums are the pinnacle for them and for what any band could aspire to for success as a rock band in the era they were in. This was the shit, man. And Huey was helping him a lot. Listen to the differences. Listen to how much more they got out of production on those two records. The sound was so much bigger. It was so much more complete. It was full of a different energy than any of the first three albums. And even though they recorded in such a beautiful place like Air Montserrat, those two albums are really, really dark, especially Invisible Sun. I like the fact that in Invisible Sun, they added the synthesizers, the horns. Sting played some sax on the album and a little piano into their songs. And the band expanded and got tighter at the same time. And 
the tension was continually building at that time as well. In the documentary Under the Volcano, Ray Cooper talks about hearing the space between the notes that are recorded at Air Montserrat Studios. On Spirits in the Material World, focus on the drums and you'll hear what he's talking about. sound, that ethereal feel of every little thing she does is magic from the opening chords. And yes, there's darkness in an invisible sun, Marcus, but you knew that. It's my favorite song on the record and my favorite police song of all time. Yes, I did. We are very close to an accord on both counts, my friend. Ah. But there's other good stuff too, man. Demolition Man, Rehumanize Yourself, One World, Not Three. Very solid message in a lot of that stuff. And I want to make a point here about the writing credits. From the very beginning, Andy and Stu are contributing songs and guys are writing different parts of songs together. But the one thing that's clear before they ever go to Montserrat is that Sting is the power and the, the real deal behind the police. And this album really brings it home. Ghost in the Machine blasted up to number two in the U.S. charts. The first single, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic, hit number three. We Are the Spirits in the Material World hit number 11. And I didn't even know that they released Secret Journey as a single. It didn't break the top 40. And it never really caught on on rock radio as a song that they would focus on either. They had so much on this record, Marcus. They just kept putting stuff out until it ran out of steam. Hey, I want to make one point about the credits here because they did have uh, Mr. Jean Roussel, who's a famous keyboard player, in on every little thing she does is magic. He's played with everybody. Go look him up. <laughs> now, the other thing that I wanted to talk about that I discovered was a misnomer, at least on our part, is how much time Sting actually spent recording and how much he actually spent playing uh, on the island of Montserrat with his family. They did these two police records, and he did the solo album Nothing Like the Sun there, but that's it. And I thought it was more on the solo side, I guess. But he was one of the biggest proponents of George's studio. I think him and Midge Yore, probably the two biggest, and Elton probably too, really promoted it just by being such big fans of the place and the studio. If you watch Under the Volcano, Stu talks a lot about the loneliness he experienced on that record being in another part of the building recording. Yeah, at that point, the tensions were so high that they were each in different rooms recording because they couldn't agree on anything without fighting. Was it that or that to get the isolation he wanted? I don't know. It's maybe a bit of both. <laughs> maybe. And The Roots of Coincidence, another Kessler book, is the inspiration for the title of Synchronicity. There's not just one, there's two. And I like them both. Breath, you will know. Trust. 
Now, I always felt there is the best and some of the what of the entire police catalog on this final record. Obviously, it's successful. It's top of the charts everywhere in the world. Every breath you take, king of pain, wrapped around your finger. But Mother's also on there. I just wanted to point that out. And Miss Gridenko. Hey, I remember getting this album as a new album, and we listened to it all the way through all the time. It wasn't one of those play the song over and over, play a couple of songs over and over, a side over and over. It was play it, flip it, play it, flip it, play it, flip it. There's a little black spot on the sun today. Some of the things that I learned in research for this record that I did not know is that in Kessler's The Roots of Coincidence, the big question that Sting wanted to ask throughout the album and was hoping to record the album about was, is there any meaning in coincidence? And I don't know if he achieved what he wanted to achieve because at this point, Sting and Stewart hated each other so much and Andy Summers was neutral, but always fucking grumpy. And my guess is he was always fucking grumpy because Sting and Stu were fighting all the time. Probably. <laughs> if they don't throw anything at each other, it's a good day. When you have three super talented musicians with strong egos and strong drive and very, very focused in their vision, you can see where conflict comes along. But obviously they weren't working out the conflict properly because of the tension and the dislike for each other as it grew and built. I think the tension's got to be palpable. And after they kind of cleaned up at the Brit Awards in 82, uh, they finished the Ghost in the Machine tour and they decide, you know what, we need to take a break, start figuring it out. Sting already decided that he was going to do some acting stuff. That's when he did uh, Quadrophenia as Ace Face and some other acting stuff. And they're all trying different things because, you know, they've done everything and achieved everything they can pretty much, except for synchronicity. Absolutely. And Dune was one of the first movie roles that I saw Sting in. Yes. And it was great in that version of Dune. As Fade, great yes. As fuck, yeah. He was hated. Totally hated. Villainous. Ah, <laughs> but he was so good. And it was so fun. Give the Harkonnen a blade and let him stand forth. If Fade wishes, he can meet you with my blade in his hand. I wish it. This is a Harkonnen animal. Why prolong the inevitable? I will kill you! <laughs> I will kill him! I will! 
see your death, my blade will finish you. You know, it's great to talk about all this great music. You know, there were some hits and misses on the solo stuff, but you can't deny that Sting is a solo artist. He's just an amazing guy. He's done all different kinds of styles and feels that the police might never have gotten around to. And I like the fact that he took a stab, so to speak, <laughs> at acting as well. Definitely an impressive solo career and a very interesting cat. Also interesting and worth noting is that through all of those times, the tough times and the, the good times on Montserrat and beyond, they were facing a lot of personal challenges, marriages ending, relationships being challenged. Hell, Trudy and Sting had to put up with their kids yelling at them to get married for years. But, you know, there was something about the way the music pulled them together. And maybe it was the spark they got from seeing the way that it reacted once they got their little babies of songs out into the world on albums, you know? I think that's what kept them together for the last album, at least. Yeah, but I think they went in knowing that this was probably going to be their last album. It's been implied that they all had that feeling without saying it openly. At the beginning, they talked about it being a punk band, and Sting wasn't even that into the idea of being a punk band, but he understood that that was the opportunity that they had at that time and went along with it. And I think they all got into it and were really deep into it, and success was starting to happen before they looked around and said, maybe this isn't the best use of my time and energy. In those early days, they got tired of playing with the three-chord punk bands because they wanted to do so much more with their music. And I remember they came from progressive and jazz. Absolutely, and Stewart knew what he wanted to do with his ideal band before the police were formed. He had this idea of what the police would be in his head, and he made it, and they knew that they had to separate from the punk movement at some point, and as you listen to their music as they slowly progress, they were labeled less punk and more new wave and alternative and pop, and they knew that was the direction they wanted to head in, and they knew that musically with each album they wanted to push limits and 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 take chances and they did that with each record and one of the most interesting things to me about synchronicity is how they got rid of the reggae vibe of those first four albums mm -hmm. almost completely and completely changed directions and it's a great album a brilliant record but to me it was wild how they got rid of that reggae vibe of theirs and it only makes me think, Marcus, what if they had done the next record? Would it have been like the next phase of a synchronicity phase? Might they have done something else after that that was completely different and taken pop music in a whole different direction as well as rock? All things we'll never know because other than the reunion show that we were lucky enough to attend, that's it. Those last two albums of theirs were more conceptual than the previous three. And I think they were going to try to head into that direction. The thing is, is they did sit down and try to record after the two year hiatus after synchronicity in the tour. But Sting and Stewart were fighting about everything, including which drum machines to use. And so they couldn't get along about anything. And then 
eventually they uh, remade Don't Stand and Do Do Do. -do. And that was all that came out of those recording sessions two years later. And then it was the greatest hits record, I think, that they were uh, included on. So they tried but couldn't do it. Listen, if a guy like Miles Copeland, such a strong personality who is a manager, can't get his brother to play well with the other two guys who were like brothers to him as well, it's hard to see why, but I guess it's the immovability, the I've got my position on these things and I'm not going to change it. And they all had it, including Summers, who was a lot more quiet about it. Yeah, he was the quiet one in the band, no doubt, but his guitar spoke loudly and you can hear it. We can hear all their instruments speaking loudly and grooving loudly together in the songs. But yeah, he was the quiet one who spoke with his music. It was their production levels, the quality at which they produced the music that they were feeling and writing that allowed you to really hear all those parts right there on the top of your awareness musically. These and many other things, in my opinion, make them one of the greatest bands of all time and certainly one of the top five bands of their era. The Police on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And before we wrap it up, I want to share this little tidbit I found from Andy Summers as this was their final tour, the Synchronicity Tour. The band was playing stadiums, arenas, humongous venues all around the world. And Sting said that it was clear to me that this was the end of the police. I didn't decide to do anything about it until we played Shea Stadium. It was the apex of what we set out to do. All you can do is hope to repeat it. Later that night, I turned to Andy and said, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. We should stop. Surprisingly, Andy said, yeah, we should stop. We all knew at the end of the tour that was it. Like any long-term relationship, sometimes when it's time, you know it. And somebody just has to say, hey, and that's what happened there. I'd say it was just a run for money in 2007, except for they put on some fucking killer shows and they could still do it and showed that they could. What I don't think that they had left in them was the ability to spend time together, to be creative together in a way that could make the band viable moving forward, even for a reunion album. And don't forget, in the meantime, Sting's been on his way making great album after great album as a solo artist. So his reduced motivation to get back into that kettle with the guys is understandable. I don't foresee anything ever happening with them together again unless they accept an award of some sort together, get knighted by England or something like that. But I don't think I could ever see them doing music together again. And it's too bad, but at the same time, we got five fantastic records from a band of three cats who love music. Any band that makes four, five, or six records that are like that, they enter rare air in the pantheon of rock and roll. And the police definitely belong in that conversation. Without a doubt. If you have doubts or you have other comments, you can feel free to add them to the conversation. Always, we've been hearing a lot from our listeners on the email lately, Marcus, imbalancehistory at gmail.com. And that's great to have conversations with people. We're finding out all kinds of good stuff about who you guys are and where you're at listening to this thing. 
And yeah, we appreciate these conversations. So thank you so much for sending in emails. You can reach us at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can go to our website, imbalancedhistory.com. Fill out a form there and it will come to us. You can also hit us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're on the Pantheon Podcast Network, a product of Dark Doc Media. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And that's it for now. Thanks for joining us for an episode all about the police on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.